Lord, you show us your love and your mercy. Lord, as we start this new year, we do not know what you have in store for us, but what we do know is that no matter what comes and no matter where you send us or what you do with us, Lord, we need you. So, Lord, I pray as we start this year, give us a glorious vision of who you are, of Christ our Savior. Lord, attend to us in our need by the power of your Spirit, now we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We're back in Matthew. So we'll be saying that a lot, I think. Matthew's a large book. But it's been very, very enjoyable to study and to preach and to hear from. And we're going to be um, reading from Matthew chapter 12. As we go through the series, um, Jesus had just invited his hearers, his listeners, us, to join ourselves to him. He says, Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So that was at the end of chapter 11, and now we're in chapter 12, and we're seeing people's responses to that invitation. And so in this, we're going to see people who receive the blessing of having followed after Christ. So there'll be the disciples, and there'll be people who are healed. And there are going to be those who staunchly oppose him, the Pharisees. This is kind of one of the big confrontation chapters, where they seem to be really trying to dig at Jesus. And... and in some sense, it's to be pitied because you see the, the joy and like, um, the happiness and the peace that are coming on the people who Jesus is touching. And you can see just the rancor and like the despondency in the Pharisees. And they just can't be happy. So we pick up in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry to those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read the law, how... On the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
So we're going to look at the challenge these Pharisees posed against Jesus' mercy. So we'll look at the challenge, and then we'll look at what they missed. And then we'll check to make sure that we're not missing it as well. So the challenge to Jesus' mercy. So the, the issue, it hinges on this day called the Sabbath. As Americans, I don't think we really appreciate the Sabbath unless you try to go buy Chick-fil-A on Sunday and it's closed. And you're like, what's up? Oh, that's right, Sunday. And so there's this day, it's the Sabbath in the culture. And it's on this day that the disciples are moving through a field and they're picking grains. They're hungry. Hungry enough to pick, I don't think that's a good meal. I'm not sure if I, like if you're desperate and like chewing on these grains. but So there they are, they're eating it. Um, during, in, in Israel, the, during the harvest, the farmers would leave uh, the edges of their fields unharvested so that people like sojourners and travelers and the poor could come and they can get food. And so like, it's an act of mercy that God had his people do to have these grains available. So if you're hungry and you needed food, you could just go to the field and pick it. But they're doing it on the Sabbath. Okay, now... One thing not to say, the Sabbath is not irrelevant here. The Sabbath is important. It, it was integral to what the culture of Israel was and who they were. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Like, Ten Commandments, Sabbath. It's right up there at the top. So, so God takes it seriously. And so, like, what were the reasons for the Sabbath? Well, I mean, the first one would be just the straight-up practical reasons. People... Need rest. We're, we're not uh, we're, we're not meant to be like seven day, week after week after week after week workers. We we need rest. There was this time when my wife and I were young and foolish, and we were working like seven days a week for like a year, and it was like perpetual burnout. It's like we just needed to stop working and rest, because the temptation is to like go 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 go. Try to get some more, try to acquire, try to like, you know, create a buffer, you know, a monetary buffer so things will be okay. Um, but God, what God's calling us to do on the Sabbath, what he calls people to do, is just rest and, and enjoy what you have. Now, God in creation, he created for six days and then he rested. Now, God is not a God who needs rest. He is a source of energy. And what he's showing us is that he enjoys. What he created, he enjoyed what was there. And it was fellowship and communion. So on the Sabbath, everyone would stop working. You couldn't, like, you had to stop working, you didn't make your kids work. You had servants, you didn't make your servants work. If you had a donkey, your donkey didn't work. Everybody just stopped what they were doing. And so it would be a time that you, you could rest and you could fellowship and you could talk around the table and spend time with each other and reflect on what God has done. So just that's the practical reason. And then there's this, the spiritual reason. Because in stopping, you are demonstrating reliance and trust on God. Because you've got like this bumper crop sitting there and you see clouds in the distance like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I need to go get all my harvest before it all goes to ruin. And God says, no, I'll take care of you. Stop. Trust me. Enjoy it. So you could stop working because ultimately it was God who was your provider, and your sustainer. There's this, there's this time in the, one of the minor prophets, I'm pretty sure it's Amos, where God says, ah, do you notice that um, 
You're planting these bumper crops. You're planting all these seeds and you're getting nothing back. And you're, 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 you're trying so hard, but you're getting nothing back. Like, because you've turned away from me. I'm the one who provides for you. And if you turn from me, I don't have to bless you. So God is the ultimate provider. And I'm sure some weeks was easier to stop than other weeks. Like, if it was a rainy week, you're like totally taking a Sabbath, going inside, building the, yeah. Actually, I couldn't build fighters. And so you just like, you just like, yeah, this is the easy day. But I'm sure sometimes it was a temptation to not rest. But in not resting, you're showing that you're self-reliant and not relying on God. So there's a spiritual reason behind it. It was a reminder to you week in and week out. And then there's like a cultural marker. Okay, so imagine you're a Roman, Okay. And you're like, oh, hey, there's this place called Galilee. Here it's good for trade. I'm going to take my wares and we're going to go sell some stuff. And you set up your little uh, place in the market, and it's like people coming, selling, selling, selling. And also one day, like, super slow day. And you're like, where are the people? And so and then you, like, turn to the stall next to you, and you're like, hey, Maximus, where are all the people? He goes, yeah, you know, these Jews, they, they're kind of lazy. They just, like, take this whole day off. No one moves. Donkeys don't move. They're not going to buy anything. And you'd be like, they're so strange. Maximus would be like, I know. It's so like, who does this? Right? God's people does it. So it's one of these things that like set you apart. Like you knew someone was a Jew when they weren't doing work on the seventh day. And so it was a distinguishing feature. So the Sabbath was important. Now, the Pharisees, they're keeping a sharp and wary eye on Jesus. Because in the Pharisees' mind, this guy is a rabble rouser. Like, he, he says he's Jewish and says he knows what God wants. But come on. <laughs> who, who, he, he's, he's, like, he's like messing with their, their, their paradigm. And so they see the disciples picking grain on Sabbath, and, they, and they're like all up in arms. Now, to us, like this complaint, it seems like nitpicky. Like, oh, here we go again. Nitpicky Pharisees. But um, you have to realize, like, the high stakes game they feel they're playing here. Like, it's easy for us looking about 2,000 years later to be like, eh, nitpicky. But to them, like, this is like, this, like, the country, literally at this point, like, is rising or falling, they believe on issues such as this. So, this means this. Um, imagine, like, the most, like, patriotic, patriot, patriot you can think of with American. Stars, stripes, all the, all the trappings. And, like, some guy comes up and says, hey, you know what? Stars and stripes aren't a big deal. World War II was a great Russian victory. <laughs> uh, rugby is more important than baseball. And if you think otherwise you really miss the spirit of what it means to be an American. And so like the, like the Patriot person, like after choking on his Budweiser, would be like, <laughs> excuse me? <laughs> like, I don't think so. And so they like, so like the rest of this party, like this person's be like watching. This person's like, I wonder if you're a Russian, right? And, and so like, and, and you feel like they might be starting to get like a little bit like, like nitpicky, like, you know, when he coughed, he coughed with an accent. And, so, and you say, like, it's like they're looking for, like, all of a sudden they're just looking for clues that you're not actually 
serving the best interests of our country. Culturally, you are different. And so, like, in, in the same way, like, the Pharisees are watching Jesus going, like, we think there's a problem here. And they're looking for, like, the little things that would prove it. Now, um, the religious elite in Israel, the religious elite, we hear about the Pharisees all the time. They kind of weren't the elite elites. Like, the elite elites, those were the Sadducees. They were in Jerusalem. The high priest would come from them. And they were like the power brokers of religion. And the Pharisees, they were created like almost in a response to the Sadducees. Because in their mind, the Sadducees were theologically liberal, corrupt, making bargains with Rome just to make sure they could stay in power. I mean, think about it. Towards the end, Caiaphas is like, you know... Let's kill this guy so Rome doesn't take power away from us. So the Pharisees, they really have a problem with the Sadducees. And so they respond, like, they, they're like a counter-movement, and they're like the people's movement. They, they, they're in the towns, and they're not necessarily in Jerusalem. Like, they're out in these, these Galilee areas showing people, okay, this is how you need to behave. Now, in their minds, so this is what they're really upset about. They say, like, the reason why God's kingdom has not come to Israel, the reason why we have Roman captors, the reason why all these bad things are happening is because you just aren't following the law the way you're supposed to. And so if we just, everybody, follow the law, God's blessing will come upon us. So, so let's make sure we're following the law. So the thing that they're characterized for is, is the rabbis would create rules upon rules upon rules just to make sure that you're following the law. Because if you follow the law as a people... God's going to bless us. So then Jesus comes and says, that's not how God's blessing comes. You can't follow rules and get God's blessing. That's not what it's about. So you can see how like, that statement is completely challenging everything they're trying to get the people to do. And then he's got these crowds of people following him. Like, you're not going to follow the law. God's blessing will not come. And she's like, it's not what it's about. Now, from the rabbis, so I was reading this uh, commentator. He was saying the rabbis. They create rules upon rules upon rules upon rules just to make sure that you're obeying the Sabbath. So you should not work on the Sabbath. Fair enough. What's work? Like, well, you could do this, but not that. But you could do this, but not that. And then, but the thing is, like, the, the rules became so fastidious that, like, no one could keep it. Like, you just couldn't. I mean, like, you hear a rule, and sometimes, like, your, your gut reaction is, like, to not, like, you told me not to, so I'm like, I'm an adult. I can do this. Like, like speed limits are for other people, right? Not for me, right? And so, like, like your reaction not to that. So, like, they would like build in these caveats. So, um, like, how far is travel? You can't travel. Well, how far is too too far in traveling? Well, you could like travel in your house, but you couldn't travel out. So they determined a thousand feet. No more, no less. Travel a thousand feet, you're traveling. Can't do that. But if a rope was tied across the end of a street, you could kind of say your dwelling place was technically the whole street. So you could travel in the block, but then once you passed the rope, you couldn't travel a thousand feet. And then, like, they also had this other rule, like, if you put food somewhere else, you could travel to your food because it's your home, and from that place, you could travel a thousand feet. So, and the commentator said, I guess if you're clever and determined enough, you could probably travel half of Palestine with these rules, right? So, like, so like they have all these rules. They're being this significant. They have this, like, this whole, whole paradigm that they themselves aren't following, and they look at Jesus' disciples and say, you're picking grace. 
How dare you? So, their argument goes something like this. You're picking grain, you're harvesting. You're harvesting, you're working. You're working, you're breaking the Sabbath. And if you're breaking the Sabbath, you're not from God. Because God would not break the Sabbath. So what's Jesus' response? So Jesus is going to ultimately show them that they've just completely missed the point. But before he does that, he gives you two examples in the sense that beat the Pharisees at their own game. He says, oh, you want to talk about... uh, breaking the Sabbath, let me give you a couple humdingers. Because, like, you, you got, like, this is, like, your rabbinical, like, interpretation of what breaking the Sabbath is. Let me show you some humdingers. So, exhibit A, David eating the showbread. So now, David, so rewind, like, and everybody loves David. Like, the Pharisees, David, 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 right? And so, David goes, he's fleeing from Saul. He finds himself in the tabernacle. His men are starving. They've got to keep fleeing Saul, but they need food. So the priests come and they give him the bread of the presence. Now, according to the law, only the priests were allowed to eat the bread of the presence. So if David eats it, lawbreaker. But at no point does the Bible ever condemn him. At no point, I doubt, did the Pharisees ever think to condemn him. Like, David, really? Right? Everybody seemed to be fine with it. And Jesus, like, seems to be fine with it. So here's a case where, like, in the law it says, only a priest eats the showbread. David, not a priest, eats the showbread. What's, the, what's your problem? So you have a problem with grain picking. How about that? You have a problem with David? Oh, you think that's upsetting? Let me show you this third one, second one. Exhibit B, priests working in the temple on the Sabbath. Okay, now this is really a high-stakes one. Because here you have... An example where the law creates an ordinance where you break the law. So law breaks a law with its own priest in its own temple. So law breaks a law with its own priest in its own temple, or so it seems. So they were working on the Sabbath. Now, like things that you would do on the Sabbath would be like, you know, arduous stuff like sweeping and moving firewood and um, barbecuing animals sacrifices right and then on top of it on the sabbath you did like two extra sacrifices on top of the normal sacrifices so like more work on the sabbath so like it's like arduous sweat producing work yet they are considered again innocent in this matter why because there seems to be a provision for it and this provision applies to the priest working in the temple, applies to David eating the showbread, and it applies, it seems, then, to disciples eating grain on the Sabbath. So what is it? So Jesus says, if you missed something, if you had understood this, you would not looked at them and said they're guilty. And what is it that the Pharisees had missed? Jesus says, if you had known what this means, Quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. So he's quoting from scripture. He's quoting from a prophet, the prophet Hosea. This is Hosea 6, 6. He's quoting from, like, their translation. Most of these people speak Greek. He quotes from the Septuagint. 
which is the Greek translation, Hebrew translation, it comes from the word hesed, steadfast love, which is like this, like the word, it, I think in the ESV they call it loving kindness. And the word, so it's like, it's a, it's a really complex word. The, the best interpretation of it i ever seen, there's not a copy on the shelf right now, but the ch- children's, the children's storybook Bible, it's got like all the pictures and stuff like that. I think they have like the best definition of God's steadfast love. You should buy it and read it to your kids or read it for yourself. And <laughs> it's God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. So it's, it's love that expresses itself in his faithfulness and in his mercy to his people. So this mercy, it's, it's like it's this mercy that's the bedrock of it is God's love for his people. I have desired mercy and not sacrifice. So what's at the heart of Sabbath? What is at the heart of all this ceremonial love? Oops, I totally just cut myself off with the answer. What of all this ceremonial law? Because to us looking at it, it's like, this is strange. Don't get your beer. Wear your clothes this way. Have this day off like this. Do this like that. And, and to us, we're like, it seems so strange, but what's the heart of it? What was God's motivation in it? And his motivation is mercy and love. God intends our good. And something like the Sabbath was intended to help people lead a full, rich, God-saturated life. And so God, so in these cases with David and with the priests, with the disciples, God was being merciful. He was being merciful in his provision. When David was fleeing Saul, when the priests were serving the table, when the disciples were picking grain, they were not saying, I don't care. Let me break the law. I don't care. No. These were people who were relying on God in those times. And in those times, God was providing for them. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And then meanwhile, then, the Pharisees had turned the whole thing upside down. And they had treated these ceremonial laws and acted as if there were something to achieve. Now, in Hosea, this is great. Jesus is totally messing with them. Like, they're like, I'm sure they're feeling a little bit shocked right now. Because in Hosea, Hosea is not talking to people who are fastidious law keepers. In Hosea, Hosea is talking to the northern kingdom, Ephraim, who were like, in the Pharisees' mind, way off the charts, like way off into pagan la-la land. Like, these people deserved God's condemnation. They had idols. They were doing their own things. These were, in the minds of Pharisees, these were like the ultimate lawbreakers. And in Hosea, God's condemning them for being like these ultimate lawbreakers, these people who had basically, in a sense, had had, like he refers to it as almost having an affair with other gods. These people who were self-reliant. And so Jesus is like saying, those people, that's who you are. (laughs) Those people. That's who you are with all your law-keeping. You're just as bad. You have the same exact problem as they did. You are self-reliant, and your goal is self-exaltation. 
Charles Spurgeon, he liked to tell this story. So there's a king. He's got two peasant serfs in his, in his king. Now, like, okay, Americans, kings are not always a bad thing. So, like, some, some political commentary says the most beneficial system to live in is a, ter- a tyrannical system with a good, benevolent, and wise king. So we have a good and benevolent wise king. Actually, things tend to work out pretty well. And okay, so and Christians, you really ought to believe that because we have a good benevolent wise king. FYI, okay, with whom all authority rests. So so these there's these two men. They're in the court of the king. So one was a farmer, and he he's one year he he unearthed this gargantuan carrot, and he's like, this is a carrot befit befit for a king. So he travels to the king's court. He gets an audience with the king. and says, King, you're a great king. You've done good for your people. I love you. And as a token of my love and appreciation, I would like to offer you the biggest carrot I have ever grown. The king takes it. It's like, thank you. You know, and as a token of my love for you, there's some, there's some farmland around your farm. Why don't you take care of that for me as well? So like, you know, they hug and shed a couple of tears together. And he goes home and he's farming. Meanwhile, there's like this nobleman going like, do what? Give a king a carrot and get farmland? <laughs> what do you think you can get if you give the king a real gift? So he goes back, he goes to his stables, and he pulls out the best horse he can find. And the next day he brings in the horse and he says, King, you're a great, gracious ruler. I love you. And as a token of my love and appreciation, here is my horse. So, like, okay, does the king see through it? Of course. Wise king. And, and, and so the guy's expecting some type of a, and? The king says, you know, yesterday, that farmer, he gave me a carrot. But today, you have given yourself a horse. <laughs> like, what was your motivation? What was your heart in this matter? So one person was moved by gratitude the other was moved ultimately in self-promotion. So in Israel, in these times, some people obeyed these ceremonial laws out of gratitude and affection for God, whereas others did it for self-promotion for themselves. And Paul, who was like the Pharisee of Pharisees, would say, like, it's kind of like he's a convert out of Phariseeism. And he's like, that's exactly what it was all about. I thought by doing all these things that I had achieved something before God, that I deserved something from God, but I found that righteousness comes by faith. It comes from Jesus Christ alone. And so how did, like, so if you're, if you're missing the point, if like, if, like, you've missed what it's all about, about mercy, not sacrifice. Like, how do you know? Like, how, how would... Because the point is, like, the question is, like, how do we know if we've missed it? Because it's really easy, super easy, to turn things like, like, why, like, you're, like, in a, not a very, like, you're not thinking theologically. You're just like, how do I know I'm okay with God? Like, one of those quiet moments, like, and you think, like, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I'm good with God. And so, in a sense, it's so easy to turn these things. Like, man, you know, I am a great person. I did something nice for that person over there. 
I showed mercy, yay me. I feel like a good person now. Like, it's so, like, our hearts are so fickle, so they just easily twist these things. And, like, and what's one of the symptoms? Well, you can see one of the symptoms. You're looking at other people going, like, don't think they're a Christian. Yeah, see, they wouldn't do that. You know, really. This is the way you're supposed to be. This is the way you're supposed to behave. And so, like, you're, you're, you're measuring people based on, like, these behaviors. And in some ways, like, Jesus say, the fruit betrays, like, tells you what type of tree you have. There's no fruit. But at the same time, like, in Galatians, there's, like, this point. It's like, look, for freedom, Christ has set you free. So you're free. You don't have to follow the law. Now, what are you going to do with your freedom? Serve people. Love people. Look out for the good. You owe each other love. But be careful if you're biting and devouring each other. So here's the other. So if you, if you got this, if you tasted God's mercy, you tasted his grace, and as a response, you're going to start showing mercy and love and grace to other people. But if you start, like, holding grudges in your little heart, a little bicker here, a little bicker there, not happy with this thing over here, not happy with that thing over here, I really think that person's got something against me because they did this, right? It feels nitpicky. Like that type of animosity in our hearts is evidence that we really have not saturated ourselves with, with mercy and love of God. So, you know, what is today? The first. So what are you probably going to try to do starting today? The Bible reading plan? Just read the Bible in a year. I'm always so good for like three weeks. <laughs> like, like school starts and I'm like, like, I'm like our basset hounds who would like always go off, like off sense, right? Would never obey. So why do we read our Bibles? Is it, do we read our Bibles just to make sure that we feel like God is okay with us? And then when you don't read your Bible, do you feel like God's not okay with you? Like, what's your motivation here? Like, oh, whew. read my Bible today. See you next. See you tomorrow, God. <laughs> like, you're good with me. So, like, so quickly it becomes a sham, and there's no power there. Like, that's what you, you treat it that way. You're going to burn out in a week. Because when, in fact, when when you read the Bible to catch another glimpse of the glory of Christ, when you when you come to be instructed by the Holy Spirit. When you come to the Bible to experience the love of the Father in it. When you say with the psalmist, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of your law and gaze and feast upon them. Then the duty becomes a delight. It's like taking my wife out on a date. Like, is it, should we go on dates? Like, yeah, totally. Right? Should we sit down and have meals together? Oh, yeah, totally. Is it a duty? I guess you'd call it that. But it's delightful. I don't care. I do it every time. The duty becomes a delight. Right. And then there's, okay, but then on the other end, so I'm saying beware, beware, like, doing it for the wrong motivations. Jesus is telling us, beware, you're doing it for the wrong motivations. But, like, then I'm also like you, there's, like, the dry spells. We're like, like, oh, I know I need to go to my Bible, but... Which is so hard. But like, you just kind of like, take your message, like you open the Bible. Okay, just read. You know, okay, pray. Like, and what's that? 
I don't think in that case, I don't think that's the sham. I think that's what's, that's a mustard seed of faith. Like clinging on, like you're like a, a blind beggar at the gate, Jesus have mercy on me. Because I need healing here. So what is the antidote? What is the antidote to a hard heart, a critical heart, a heart that has not tasted and experienced mercy and therefore is not showing people love and mercy? What's the antidote? And Jesus is showing it to us here, here in this passage, because it's what he says about himself. Who is he? He is something greater than the temple. The t- something greater than the temple is here. What's the temple? The temple is a place, like a location where God and man would meet. Here is where you go to commune with God. And it is a place where you saw the picture, the shadow of, the picture of redemption played out again and again. As lambs were sacrificed on your behalf, like the sin was taken off the view, placed on the lamb, so that you could go and fellowship with the Father. And and so Jesus says something the greater the temple here. The temple, it was a shadow. The reality has come. I am Emmanuel, God with you. I am here with you. And then, when you're saved, when you have faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says that we are baptized into the body of Christ. We're made one with the body of Christ. You're a member of the body of Christ. What does that mean? He says, you are the temple of God. Why? Because God himself dwells with you through his spirit. We are, the congregation, the temple of God. You don't need a physical location anymore. And when the heavens come down and he sees a temple, what does he see? A bride adorned for the husband. We become the temple of God, because we are united to Christ. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. So when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, like, that's what we, you know, in a sense, that's what God requires of us. But like, think about it. It's a statement about who God is, his character. That he is a God who desires mercy, who desires that people show mercy. And he himself shows mercy. Because here is Jesus Christ who has come on this earth to show mercy. And here's the Lord of the Sabbath standing up and defending his disciples. These, these people say, they're guilty, they're guilty. And he says, they are not. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus treats the Sabbath way more seriously than the Pharisees do. The Pharisees think they treat the Sabbath seriously. No. Jesus himself treats it infinitely more seriously than they do. Because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He would never allow his people to do anything to break it. And he comes himself. He becomes for us our Sabbath rest. That at the end of the day, and all our strength and all our striving is not enough. Right? As Martin Luther say, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, the Lord of hosts who comes and rescues us, the one whose work is sufficient for salvation. So that when he goes to the cross, he bears our iniquity, so that he can invite us into his rest. 
in Titus says that God saved us. God saved us. Not of works done by us in righteousness. No, but according to his own mercy. How? How? By washing. You were washed with regeneration. You were renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit whom he poured poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that we who are now justified, who are right with God, might become heirs. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would see your glory As we start here, January 1st, 2017, Lord, what we need to see is your beauty. Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us today, tomorrow, throughout the years. Lord, we understand that our hearts are fickle. Our affections, they turn to other things. And God, we ask that you would help us. Teach us your ways. Make us walk on right paths, as the psalmist would say. Forgive our sins. Do not hold it against us. Show us your glory. Open your word to us that we might say beautiful things out of your word and that our souls would feast and enjoy it forever. We thank you for your love. Give us the power to serve you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We come, we share at his table. We sit at his table. So if the ushers would come forward and the worship team.
I have in me, but it's never loud enough after all you remember this moment um, probably like way too far in my Christian life where I realized like that like the disposition towards like when you saw like holy and glory and stuff like that and you and like and it involves like good behavior and you're like man like it's, it's some it's so, like somehow like holiness was the problem sin's the problem God make us holy God make us make us Shine with your glory. Let us have hearts and affections and actions that reflect who you are. And so, so what does he say? Like, well, first of all, like, so yeah, you should be holy. Get to it. Well, first he says, well, I've redeemed you. I've washed you. In my mind, you're pure. And he says that as we gaze at Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That it's the vision. It's, it's Christ. It's seeing him. It's saving him. That, that's what does it. It changes your heart. It changes your affection. As one, as one uh, pastor called it, it's the explosive power of new affections. That is what we need. So then when you start doing it, when you start being it, God says, it's my fruit in you. It's my spirit in you. 
that when you work, it's God working in and through you. It's His grace. Oh, we need His grace. We need His grace. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Please stand as we close, sing, and then a time of fellowship. We should take advantage of it. We need each other. So.